Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Kellen McPherson. And I'm David Moore. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley, who discusses and interviews a representative from environmental advocates for an update on the lead pipes in Troy, New York. Then we learn about the New York State Council of the Arts grant recipients and their relationship with the New York Folklore Group. Later on, we went to our archives and found a poetry segment from Tom Francis. After that, Jerry Ford of Troy NAACP and Team Hero met with Brother Malik Muhammad, a curator of the Sankofa Project. Finally, we will hear from King Malachi, who will be performing music as Saturday's Black History Month celebration at the sanctuary. But first, here are the headlines. This pro- pro- prote- the protest against the State University of New York treatment of David, Dar- da- David Carpenter continues to mount with a compliant being filed by the Maryland-based Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility over SUNY's the conduct that has restricted his academic freedom and freedom of expression. SUNY has restricted Dr. Carpenter's work as a nationally known PCB researcher due to pressures from Monsanto. Monsanto has been forced to pay billions of dollars in damages due to its manufacturing of the toxic chemicals. Eugene Selly, the Schenectady County jail guard who beat up a detainee, breaking several of his ribs, will serve six months in jail. The Times Union reports that two loans of $157 million taken out by the owners of Crossgates Mall are headed once again towards the default uh, amid the widespread financial challenges facing the large indoor shopping malls across the country. Issues with pyramid mortgages on its malls across upstate and elsewhere have been occurring for several years now after the pandemic forcing many of its tenants into bankruptcy and forces the malls to renegotiate leases, usually at much lower rents. Dozens of Burn residents expressed their opposition at a heated meeting to a proposed town law that would open some of the town's roads to ATVs and other off-road vehicles. The Times Union said the proposal would identify several dozen town roads that ATV riders could use to move between trail systems, which is legal under state law. A former town supervisor was escorted out of the packed hearing by local sheriffs. While opposing the law, the former supervisor has apparently been driving his ATV on local roads. A Florida-based real estate uh, executive has purchased the historic St. Patrick's Church building in Troy's North Central neighborhood for $249,500. While the new owner has not disclosed her plans, other buyers are looking to use it for an event space or for apartments. A state oversight program charged with inspecting the state's 1,400 nursing homes and assisted living facilities to protect against abuse and neglect has regularly failed to check on the elderly residents. According to a recent AARP report, critics say the program is woefully understaffed and relies on too much volunteers. The Gazette reports that Saratoga Springs city residents will have to wait until all of the city council's business agenda is finished before they will be allowed to speak at meetings starting in March. 
The changes to the meetings come after a council meeting on February 7 was adjourned three times, in part due to Saratoga Black Lives Matter member Chandler Hickenbottom refusing to give up the microphone during the public comment period as she sought a public meeting between Black Lives Matter and the city council. The state is seeking $28,369 in unpaid state income taxes from Schenectady City Councilman Damani Farley. The Gazette noted that the city GOP called for Farley's resignation earlier this month after revelations that Farley had, had served a both full-time employee for the Schenectady City School District and a consulate for the district from 2015 to 2021. And that's it for the headlines. Mark Dunley speaks with Rob Lowe, Clean Water Director for Environmental Advocates, about the community organizing and the recent action of the Troy City Council to replace lead pipes. We're joined by Rob Hayes, who is the uh, Director of Clean Water for Environmental Advocates of, of New York. And one of the stories we've been covering recently has been the issue of lead pipes, uh, in the city of Troy, um, recent sampling done by the city found what they call some of the feeder lines between the uh, city's water system and the people's homes have lead in it. And then it was disclosed that, in fact, the city's been sitting on half a million dollars for a number of years to help out with this issue, but had not yet spent any of the money because they're trying to figure out what to do. And so... Rob, what is the latest that you know about the lead pipe situation in Troy? Well, after it came to light that the city had been sitting on this grant, this $500,000 grant to replace lead pipes, uh, the Troy community really got organized. And uh, we at Environmental Advocates were able to connect with a number of residents who have lead pipes and have lead in their drinking water, some of whom even have lead poisoned children. Uh, and really, the community of Troy stood up and demanded action from the city. Uh, and they demanded not only for the city to spend this current grant funding to replace lead pipes, but to, in fact, develop a plan to remove every single lead pipe in Troy. Uh, and at the meeting last Thursday of the city's utility uh, committee meeting, that is exactly what the mayor and his superintendent of public works presented. They laid out a plan to replace 100% of Troy's lead pipes over a 15-year period with none of the direct costs of replacements put on to residents, which is so critical because these pipe replacements can run thousands of dollars. So really, residents' voices worked. They got Troy to commit to a new plan, and now we're turning to how can we make sure that plan is implemented as swiftly and equitably as possible. Well, when you say that they're not uh, having the residents pay for it, perhaps can clarify, but it seems like they're actually making all the residents pay for it by possibly increasing the water charges, but not charging the individual homeowners directly for the cost of the replacement. Is that correct? And is there, you know, additional funds that may be available at the state level? Uh, certainly putting money into water infrastructure is a big priority at the state level, plus the Environmental Bond Act. So what are some of the possible funding sources? That's that's absolutely correct, Mark. And yeah, what the city is proposing is to spend some of their American Rescue Plan money to do these pipe replacements, but then, as you were saying, to also increase the water rate charge uh, to pay for the rest of it. We're uh, we think that there are funding sources available 
to minimize or even prevent that water rate increase entirely. There is a historic level of funding that could be used for lead pipe replacement right now. There's more funding that the city can go after from the federal bipartisan infrastructure law funding that's making hundreds of millions of dollars available for lead pipe replacements in New York. And there is also money that uh, the state of New York has appropriated over the last several years. Since 2017, New York has appropriated $4.5 billion for the Clean Water Infrastructure Act, some of which could be used for lead pipe replacement. Uh, but how much of that funding is used for lead pipe replacement is completely at Governor Hochul's discretion. And so we hope that as the situation in Troy has come to light, and knowing that there are many other communities with a lead pipes problem across the state, that Governor Hochul will announce significant funding from uh, New York's clean water appropriation to replace lead pipes. Well, you mentioned that there are probably um, quite a few other communities in New York State that has, you know, similar problems with with, with lead pipes. You know, what had uh, either required or motivated the city of Troy to, you know, be doing this annual, um, you know, testing of, of water for lead? And are other communities also doing that or required to do that? You know, Troy is uh, more unique than some cities in that they had detected so much lead in their drinking water in recent years that they had exceeded the U.S. EPA action level for lead in their drinking water, which already is absurdly high. And that standard is actually not protective of human health. So Troy was even above that high EPA standard. That's what's uh, caused Troy to do a lot more testing of lead in their system in recent years. Uh, but of course, you know, wherever lead pipes are present, there is going to be lead in the drinking water. It's impossible to fully prevent that contamination while those pipes are still delivering drinking water. Uh, so that's, you know, Troy is definitely in, in has a unique problem. Uh, and it's why we're, we were excited to see the city really do a, a, a to recognize that it needed to overhaul what it was doing to get these lead pipes out of the ground. But other cities are certainly still detecting lead in their drinking water. They still have lead pipes buried underground. You know, this is a statewide problem and it's gonna ultimately demand a statewide solution. Uh, but really what Troy is going to implement now over the next couple of years, it's going to be precedent setting. No other city in New York has committed yet for replacing 100% of their pipes without placing any direct costs of those replacements on the residents. Uh, so hopefully this will show that other communities in New York can do the same thing. I, I feel somewhat compelled to mention that a, a friend of mine, Dr. Jill Stein, who's a Harvard trained physician and basically used to do research on neurological issues for children, was one of the initial people many years ago who started to make the claim that low exposure to lead was actually bad for children and her, and she was particularly with the physicians for social responsibility were initially attacked as crackpot for making uh, that claim. And of course now that has become um, sort of mainstream science. But you know, it's really good to hear that the city is beginning to move. Sort of two, two part question. One is 15 years, uh, an adequate timeline. And second, why had they delayed you know, so long on this? 
Well, there's there's a number of ways that we're going to be advocating to improve the proposal that Troy has put forward. You know, this is really the initial plan, but now residents are going to have the chance to weigh in to make sure that this plan replaces lead pipes as swiftly and equitably as possible. Uh, and I think one thing that residents are going to be advocating for is to speed up that replacement timeline. We have seen other cities across the country replace all of their lead pipes much faster than 15 years. I think it even took the city of Newark just three years to replace all of their lead pipes. So, so long as the funding is there and the political will is there, it's possible to have these replacements happen a lot faster. I think the other thing residents are, are going to be advocating for is to make sure that we're providing proactive, the city is providing proactive filtration to properties with lead pipes. You know, some of these pipes are gonna be dug up quicker than others. And we want to make sure that people who might have to wait a little longer for their pipe to be dug up, that they're not still exposed to lead when they turn on the tap. Those filters can be a really good temporary solution as we work on the longer term solution. Uh, but then to get to your other question, Mark, about why the delay is so long, you know, I think there, you know, water departments across the state have so much on their plate. And they're oftentimes underfunded and they're doing so much to try and protect clean water that I don't think that lead pipe replacement has really, uh, for many kind of uh, systems across the state, really risen to be a top priority. You know, these pipes have been underground for 50 years. Uh, some operators might think, you know, it's, it's all right if they stay in the ground a little longer. Um, but I think, you know, as you were saying, the science continues to show that there is no safe level of lead in drinking water. And the Troy Water Department has really recognized this now and has committed to making sure all these pipes come out of the ground. Now, you know, you are a clean water guy, um, but I also know that, you know, lead in paint and particularly in a lot of the old apartments, especially older apartments in low income neighborhoods, uh, is, a, is also a problem throughout the state of New York, it's been known for many years. Did that at all come up at the uh, recent city council meeting, though? Granted, that was a meeting about the public utility, not about the buildings department. Right, right. Uh, definitely lead paint and lead pipes are interconnected. We want to make sure that we're, you know, reducing all sources of lead exposure. Uh, and so it's good to city develop the plan to replace uh, the pipes and the water aspect of this. One way that the city said that they're going to be prioritizing where to start lead pipe replacements is looking at uh, properties in the city that currently have kids living in them with elevated blood lead levels. Uh, and those properties, along with having lead pipes, are likely to have lead paint as well. Uh, so making sure that we're prioritizing replacements at those homes where kids are most at risk and where's the there's the worst threat to of kind of lead exposure, uh, the better it will be to kind of reduce uh, the lead exposure that those kids are exposed to. We've been talking with Rob Hayes, uh, Director of Clean Water for Environmental Advocates of New York, I believe EANY.org. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Continue to listen to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine for further updates on this story and other environmental actions. In this next segment, we hear from Eileen McHale, Executive Director of New York Folklore and Anne Rapport Berliner, the staff folklorist, who talked with Bria Barthel about the New York Folklore event, which grants folk and traditional artists with grants. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm at an amazing location on J Street in Schenectady called New York 
Folklore, which is a membership organization. It has an incredible gallery, and it works to support art of all kinds in New York State. So I'm, I'm meeting with two people. I'll start out talking with Ellen McHale, the director. Ellen, maybe you can tell us something about New York Folklore. Well, we're, um, as you said, based on uh, in Schenectady, but we're statewide. So we work uh, out of the Schenectady office, but we have other projects that are going on throughout the state. And our mission is to support traditional arts and culture wherever it's found in the state. So we work with uh, artists. We work with community-based organizations. We work with what we call community scholars who are maybe documenting their own communities. And we also work with folklore professionals who are working within, uh, often within arts organizations or museums, or in some cases, libraries to uh, document their own communities. So we have a pretty large and diverse group of people that we are affiliated with throughout the state. And I love how you, you stress that it is the documentarians, but also the actual artists. I love coming to the gallery here because there's such a variety of crafts and skills represented. Tell us just a little bit about the kinds of artists you work with. Well, we try to uh, change the gallery exhibition about four times a year. And we try to represent, in many cases, an individual artist. So we work uh, with... Uh, individuals who come from newer communities. In the past, for example, we had an exhibit by Altine Stoya, who is an iconographer, and he had an exhibit of his iconography work from the conception phase up into the completed pieces. We've had uh, exhibitions of uh, Noah Corey, who's a blacksmith. Right now we have a quilting exhibit uh, by Beth Taylor. So we try to uh, identify and work with artists who have a body of work because uh, that is a key also is to have a body of work that you can show, not necessarily to sell, but to show the kind of work that you do. And it's work that comes out of a community's heritage. Uh, it reflects the community's aesthetics. And it's uh, many times people who are... Uh, very skilled at what they do, and they've learned through a long period of time, but they are not what we would call a fine artist. They haven't gone to school and received a Bachelor's of Fine Arts. Um, they're folks who have learned from doing within the community. Thank you. And yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful collection. And that quilt exhibit, frequent listeners may remember I did a piece on that when it first got installed. You can find that on our website. And now I'm switching over to Anne Rappaport Berliner, who has one of the coolest job titles ever. Anne Rappaport Berliner is the staff folklorist. Tell us something about what your job includes, Anne. So probably um, the, the part of my job that is uh, the most fun and I think the most indicative of the work I do as a folklorist is the ethnographic interviews that I carry out with folk and traditional artists, with tradition bearers, community scholars throughout the capital region and um, far flung places uh, from Schenectady as well, where I spend time with an artist talking to them or a tradition bearer about the work that they do, whether it is quilting or blacksmithing or beekeeping and talk to them about the traditions, the way they learned and how they're passing it on to other community members. So it's not just art, but you mentioned beekeeping? That's right. Uh, it doesn't have to be art with a capital A, but anything that involves, as Ellen said, an aesthetic or a value system that is expressed through, through the practice. So maybe practice is a good word. And you mentioned a phrase that 
I can sort of guess at what it is, but maybe you can say more tradition bearer. Sure. Yeah. Tradition bearer, um, sometimes we use it interchangeably with artist, is the person who creates the art or the craft or the music or the food, whatever kind of tradition it happens to be. They're the one who knows how to do it. They have learned it from someone else in their community and are most likely passing it on to someone else. And uh, now that we have a sense of what the organization does and what each of you do, uh, do you have an event coming up? that has to do with artists and tradition bearers. Tell us about the upcoming event. Yeah, our upcoming event is a reception with folk and traditional artists who received funding from the New York State Council on the Arts. So likely they received one of three kinds of grants. Probably the most well-known in the world of folk art and folk life are apprenticeships, where master artists in the capital region are given a grant to pass on their craft or their art or their tradition to an apprentice, to someone else in their community. So um, some of the apprenticeships this year uh, were iconography, and that was Altine, who was mentioned earlier, uh, classical Indian music, Ghanaian drumming, dressmaking, a variety of, of apprenticeship grants were awarded this year, which we're really proud of because it is uh, really indicative of the work we do. As soon as you said Indian classical music, I thought of Veena Chandra, who I see is on your list with a couple of, of her, uh, with one of her sons, I believe. Yes, both Veena and her son Devish uh, each received apprenticeship grants to teach uh, the sitar and the tabla, respectively. And this is a very interesting list. Maybe you can give us a sense of some of the other uh, people or traditions that are, are going to be recognized with these grants. Sure. So another category where grants were awarded was support for artists, a relatively new category by the New York State Council on the Arts. The goal of them is to give support to artists to be able to continue to create their work and and their body of work. Uh, Some of the ones that uh, stand out are uh, Karen Music and Dance, and that's two different grants to actually a husband and wife pair. The um, wife, Eshway, does a dance and her husband Pina plays the harp and this is a relatively relatively new newcomer community the Karen from uh, Myanmar and they're uh, really um, great they often uh, perform with New York Folklore at our programming so we're really happy to be able to support them in their community another artist is uh, Zorki Nelson. I mentioned earlier the Ghanaian drumming. He, in addition to his apprenticeship grant, also received a support for artist grant, and he is going to be creating a Pan-African orchestra for the capital region, which is something that he was involved in before he came to the United States. So we're excited to be able, again, to support him and the continuation of that project. So these are people who have come from other countries still bearing the traditions of those countries. And yet one interesting piece I see on here is African-American hair braiding. Yes. So folk art, uh, folk and traditional art doesn't necessarily need to come from an immigrant or newcomer community, although that is a large, uh, a large community who we work with. A lot of folks do practice um, American-born or things that they have brought with them from much, much farther back. And the African-American hair braiding is by a woman out of Amsterdam. She's a master hair braider. In addition to actually braiding hair, she also creates a variety of oils and she passes on these 
um, these traditions that she learned at home to her daughters, to her community members. And it's actually a really important grant. And I'm really glad it was supported because Amsterdam does not have a hair salon that caters to African-American hair. So the work she's doing is especially important. That's terrific. Now, you mentioned um, some foods, and I see on the, the media advisory that there will be food at this event. Let's hear about the food. Yeah, so uh, the food that we're planning is from different uh, different local restaurants, which represent the heritage of some of our grantees. Um, we're going to have uh, a lot of halal food because quite a few of our grantees are Muslim. So that's and it's important that we're able to feed them. And that's from a restaurant called Halal Barbecue on Central Ave in Albany. And we have worked with them quite a few times. They are always a favorite at our Folklife Festival. So we're excited to be able to bring them to this reception as well. I'm getting hungry. Tell me where I should go for this event. Well, it's it's going to be held at the Linda. Um, it is... Uh, we uh, so one needs to RSVP for the event, but the uh, Linda is the WAMC uh, performance venue um, on Central Avenue, and the address is three thirty nine Central Avenue in downtown Albany. And that's um, Thursday, February twenty third, five to eight p.m. Uh, so that is the event that's coming up. And if people want more information, or how do they RSVP? They would have to uh, contact New York Folklore. Uh, we can be contacted by phone at 518-346-7008 uh, info at nyfolklore.org is uh, our, our general mailbox, but uh, we, that's where the invitations, uh, RSVPs are arriving. Um, so one would have to let us know that you're uh, interested. And the website for more information? is uh, nyfolklore.org. Thank you very much. That was Ellen McHale, Director of New York Folklore, and Anne Rappaport, Berliner, Staff Folklorist, talking with me, Bria Barthel, for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. To see and greet tradition bearers, you must register for the event on, thir- for, on scheduled for Thursday, February 23rd. For more information and registration, go to the Folklore website, nyfolklore.org. And for those just tuning in, I'm Keelan McPherson. And I'm David Moore. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, family. Find today's story and more at mediasanctuary.org. Tom Francis is on hiatus this week. We are we have gone into his archives, and this week we are playing Tom's first poetry segment. 
Dan Wilcox has been a major part of the local poetry community since the 1980s. He was a member of Three Guys from Albany with Charlie Rossiter and the late Tom Nattel. He is a familiar face at many literary and arts events in the area, almost always with his camera in hand, as he claims to have the world's largest collection of photos of unknown poets. He currently hosts the third Thursday Poetry Night at the Social Justice Center on Central Avenue in Albany, New York. On October 16, 2018, Dan shared his poem, Waiting for Jacqueline Robinson, at the Brass Tacks open mic at the Low Beat on Central Ave. At the empty college backstop, I bring a bucket of baseballs, throw them to Anna at the plate, tell her to swing it. Everyone watch the ball and hit it. Her coach says, why did she swing? It was over her head. I say, she hit it, got on base. At this age, they throw strikes by accident. She is small, fast, knocks down boys blocking the plate. I tell her, you could be the first woman major league baseball player. Of course, she has other ideas. Now she helps people stay well, is gentle and kind, what she wants to do. In the summer, we keep score at ball games. I am still waiting for Jacqueline Robinson to make that great play at second base. Dan has a few poems about baseball. In fact, he has a chapbook, Baseball Poems, dedicated to the sport. I wanted to know a little bit more about the intersection of poetry and baseball and what inspired him to write that poem about his daughter maybe one day becoming the first female Major League Baseball player. It started when I was a kid. My father was a baseball fan and, you know, got me a crappy glove and we'd go out in the backyard and toss a ball around. And then I... Um, joined little league and uh i play I, I was a lousy player i didn't really <laughs> care about it uh but uh, uh there was one time when um i was on a team and uh i wasn't being played a lot you know and it was uh it was a team where you had the full uniform rather than just a t-shirt and this was like the the majors you know wow and i don't know how i got picked because i really was crappy um, and they didn't have any rules about everybody has to play a certain amount each game and all that. And um, I was, uh, I just wanted to play baseball, even though I wasn't good at it. I liked it. And I went to the manager and I said, I want to go down to the next level below. And he said, why do you want to do that? You know, because everybody wanted a full uniform and all that. And I said, because I want to play baseball. So but that was it, my, my career, because when, when they got to the Babe Ruth, um, so many of those guys were so much bigger than me and everything. I was just going to be overpowered, so I just didn't. And I never played any kind of competitive baseball since then. But I enjoy the game. I enjoy watching it. And uh, I, I've always learned to keep score. All my kids know how to keep score. You know, I trained them all. Um, and uh, it just it just became part of my life. Now, intertwining it with poetry, I, I look at it like um, Allen Ginsberg talked about this too. They it, that it's just a part of my life, and I write about everything in my life. And so, baseball is another thing that I write about in my life. So it's not um, 
intertwining or anything like that. It's it's no different than if I wrote a poem about my kids or about being at a peace demonstration or or getting laid or anything like that. <laughs> That's basically it. You know, and I don't have a whole lot of poems about baseball. I did publish a, a small chapbook in 2019 for when I was going down to the Scissor Tail Creative Writing Festival in Oklahoma. It's just called baseball poems. And I mean, there may be a couple other poems that aren't included in that, that little book, but uh, um, that, that's where I kind of put, pulled them all together. My um, youngest daughter, Anna, was growing up. She got interested in playing baseball. She was a dabbler. She did everything. I was step dancing, ballet, um, track, basketball, and baseball. Um, my other kids were more focused, but she was kind of dabbling around. She was really, really good at baseball. Uh, this is like at the lower level kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because she, she was fast. And um, so I wanted to make sure that when she played, she would get on base. So um, her grandparents lived out behind uh, Siena College. So I went and I got just about every baseball I could find in the house. And I had quite a few a bucket of baseball. And I took her out there to one of the backstops at uh, um, Siena College. And I was throwing pitches at her. And I said, I want you to swing at everything I throw at you, even if it's over your head. Because, hmm. you know, you can't wait for that perfect pitch. And particularly in Little League, you can't, because as I say in the poem, there's you know, kids at that age, they don't throw strikes, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so um, I wanted her to be able to hit something and, and and train her eye. And that was the main thing, to train your eye on watching the ball and then, then hitting it. So, you know, we did that maybe once or twice. I don't know how many times. And I would coach her in baseball. I would tell her things that, you know, to, to augment her speed, her natural speed. And I would say, like, once she'd be playing a game and there'd be a guy standing in the baseline where she's running from, like, first to second. And I said, you got to run right through him. He's not supposed to be there. He can't block the pace. I said, you just got to run through him. And one time she was running home and the catcher was blocking the plate and she pushed him out of the way. And and the ump, the ump said to the manager, uh, that girl was a little rough on that guy. <laughs> and I was so proud. <laughs> I was so proud of her for doing that. Um, so that's where that uh, that poem kind of came from that, because I was thinking also, I'm a firm believer that, uh, I mean, I'm not a very big guy, but there are guys in um, Major League Baseball who are my size and even smaller, who are Altuve, mm-hmm. for example, who are excellent baseball players. And they're, they're fast and they have a good eye and they can hit, and they can um, field. And uh there are women playing ball. Mostly they're playing softball, which Anna never moved up to because she didn't like softball. She liked the regular hardball. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are women athletes. Of course, they're much better than me. They're athletes and stuff. So why can't they play baseball like the guys play baseball? You know, and and someone like Aaron Judge is such a he's an anomaly because he's so big. You know, right. he doesn't have to be. But there's a lot of baseball players that are no, normal, quote unquote, size. And so women can certainly do that, particularly athletic women. So I was thinking of Jackie Robinson and how, you know, the first black um, baseball player in the major leagues. And uh, I thought, you know, I want to I want to and I'm still saying this. I want to live long enough to see that first 
woman professional major league baseball player. Dan has a number of projects that he's involved in, including the Poetic License Albany Exhibit, a joint project between the Hudson Valley Writers Guild and Upstate Artists Guild, currently on display through October at Lark Hall. And he was recently invited by Paul Grondel of the New York State Writers Institute to be part of a collaboration with the great Charlie Rossiter. Paul asked if I'd be willing to write a short poem for them uh, on collaboration. Make lots of different notes and stuff. And then I said, ah, it's just right in front of me. The three guys from Albany. I mean, that mm-hmm. was a collaborative effort. Absolutely. So I started making notes on it. And then I said, well, you know what? Let me let me see if Charlie wants to buy into it. So anyways, I, I, I called Charlie and I said, hey, Charlie, you want to buy in on this project? I said, just, you know, I said, I got a pretty good idea what I'm doing. But so he just sent me about three, four emails with uh, all kinds of three guys from Albany memories and stuff like that. You know, it's just about a page long. Uh, I just sent it off this morning to to Grandel. I haven't heard from him. And uh, I think the event's coming up pretty soon. So uh I may be able to read it at the event, at least I hope I can. When not taking photos at the events he attends, Dan also takes notes and posts them on his website, along with poems and other musings, at dwlcx.blogspot.com. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. For more poetry pieces, go to our website, mediasanctuary.org, or listen every Tuesday for new poetry segments. Jerry Ford of Troy NAACP and Team Hero came to the sanctuary in preparation for this Saturday's Black History Month celebration at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. He met with Brother Malik Muhammad, the curator of Sankafa Project, the Black History Exhibition that will be on display during the event. Here is Jerry Ford's conversation with Brother Muhammad. So we are here once again. We have a great guest with us, a great brother of mine, and I'm always just blessed to be in his presence, Brother Malik Muhammad. How are we doing today, King? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking, uh, Pastor Ford. I'm doing wonderful. Awesome, awesome. It's always a celebration whenever we get a chance to be in each other's presence. And now we have something to really celebrate which is our annual Black History event here in the city of Troy. And so you have participated in the event in the past. Can you give us a sneak preview of what we can anticipate from you this year? I'm going to be dealing with seven subjects, dealing with El Kevulon Empire, the Mayafa, or the Black Holocaust, the Black Resistance, Black Wall Street, and the cities that built themselves to become prosperous, after the emancipation, then I'm going to deal with the black power movement and I'm going to end up with Black Lives Matter. So it's going to be seven topics, seven subjects, but these subjects are going to be what you will not hear in the educational school system. Awesome. And I mean, could you just maybe let us in on why did you feel, aside from the fact that we're not hearing it in educational schools, why do you feel obligated to bring this information to light? Well, proper information brings about a transformation. Our people are in dying need of transformation. Between the violence uh, and all the other things, issues that we have to deal with, the only thing that we can now do and bring to the topic is proper information. 
the things that we need to know that gives us our why and connects us to our mission. See, if you don't have a why, you won't have a mission. You won't have a purpose. Come on. So the why comes from history. History is important. It produces a present. Correct. And the present moves us to the future. But we have to look back and study. Hey, man, we are so blessed to have you in our presence and presenting this information. Um, so um, can you just give us the name of your presentation? It is called the Sankofa Project. And Sankofa is a key Swahili word, which means to look back and fetch our greatness to turbocharge us forward into the future. Awesome, awesome. So you've heard from Brother Malik Muhammad in regards to our Troy Annual Black History Celebration, which will be happening on Saturday, February 25th, here at the Sanctuary for Independent Media, from four to seven, our brother Malik Muhammad will be our main presenter. We also will have a musical performance by King Malachi and DJ Hollywood will have the ones and twos for the whole event. This is an event that you and your whole family do not want to miss. Brother Muhammad, as we've talked about on, on several occasions, you bringing this, uh, your presentation out and your museum out. So I've had the experience of being there. Can you tell the individuals who may be coming out for the first time what they will experience? Yes. Um, they will see beautiful historical pictures and images that I'm hoping that will stay in their minds and create conversation, questions, and bring up maybe answers. This is about my seventh time doing it. It has increased. It has become... And more demand is going to be at the Boys and Girls Club, a prior day. I've been asked to do this at numerous uh, programs. So I'm happy that it is meeting with uh, great, you know, uh, anticipation. And I just hope that people come. You can walk around. If you have questions, this is going to be an interactive museum where you can ask questions if there's pitches that maybe promote conversation. I will be there as a griot uh, to help assist and answer or maybe even lead you to some books that'll give you greater understanding of the image that you're looking at. Hey, listen, I love how you just so graciously said that they might promote conversation. The whole museum is gonna promote conversation. I'm telling you, when you look at how he has hand-constructed this brother hand-constructed this museum, and it's going to promote conversation, especially when you highlight the things that happened pre-slavery. So, I mean, why was it so important, especially pre-slavery, that we start talking about that? Well, as a retired educator working in the school system, uh, we could not get the teachers to conversate. They always started black history from slavery like Africans didn't have any history before uh -huh. they brought us here. Right. And truthfully, we had 30,000 years of magnificent history. I mean, there's so many things you'll see that we invented yes. and that we ran a, a, a system in most of these pharaohs and kings that you will learn about. They ran their empires for over 150 to 240 years. Wow. And... Those that are 
you will see the, the supremacy of black women that ruled empires and fought against colonial uh, invaders for many years. Right. So you're going to get to uh, see and meet people that are your ancestors. Come on. That will promote. Uh, and activate and excite the royalty DNA that you have inside of yourself. Wow. And you, this is to empower us. Mm -hmm. It's all about us and our babies and our children learning critical race theory. Come on, come on. All right, without argument, without compromise, we must know the whole history in order to create conversation and dialogue. Come on, man. Activating that superpower. Right. On this building, I watched, I came in and it was a writing on the wall. And it was Bob Marley's great saying. It was emancipate yourself Come on. from mental slavery. Wow. And that's what we have to do. We have to emancipate ourselves. Because the human family must be free of lies. Come on. We must crash the system. Yes. We must delete the algorithm of white supremacy. Come on. And the only way we could do that is by telling the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the, the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the so truth. So help you, God. So help us, God. Come on. So listen, I mean, that's phenomenal, phenomenal. Uh, in the beginning, you spoke of also your museum highlighting the Reconstruction era. I feel like they have done almost a perfect job of, of, of erasing that space that we had. Oh, I got some surprises. I don't want to leak it now because oh, all right. I have some information <laughs> that for you that will put a whole, paint a whole new picture yeah. on some of the people that you were told were great patriots. Mm. Uh, I'll just throw out one name. Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln. Come on. Tell the truth. We say we, this is the truth, right? Thomas Jefferson. Come on. Yeah. Who was that guy that said, give me liberty or give me death? Mm-hmm. Uh, Patrick, I think, what was his name? Patrick Henry? I can't, one of them. Yeah, well, yeah. we're going to go into some real history because this is the only way we can move forward. We have to have a country that's built on truth. Come on, man. And then we can move forward. And this is the reason why we see so many of the atrocities that we see today continue to perpetuate themselves because we haven't settled the matter. Let's settle the matter, man. Let's come out with the truth. Let's stand on the truth so we can really move forward. Listen, for us to live what Martin Luther King envisioned and mm -hmm. all the great ones, mm -hmm. we cannot base any of our government based on misinformation. Come on. Because these children are going to want to know yeah. the right information. And you know the thing about it? They got access now. See, they used to be able to tell us anything. They got access to it right in the palm of their hands. Palm of their hands. And this is why we have to now speak the truth, else we will be brought <laughs> up as traitors yes. and misinformers. Yes. And the worst thing to do is to go to your grave as a person that didn't speak up and tell the truth when the time was right. Come on, man. Listen, I'm so excited. I need you to come. We're going to be here at the Sanctuary for Independent Media once again uh, Saturday. February 25th from 4 to 7, Brother Malik Muhammad will invigorate you. He will tap He will tap in. You're going to tap in once you see the truth on display. Please come meet us here 4 to 7. Need to be there. Again, that is Saturday, 
uh, the 25th, February 25th, here at the Sanctuary from 4 to 7. If you'd like to register for this event, you can go to our website, mediasanctuary.com, and find the Events tab. Another featured guest at this Saturday's Troy Black History Celebration is King Malachi, who will be performing music. Listen up. This year's Troy's Black History Celebration will be taking place at the Sanctuary for Independent Media on February 25th. This celebration will include an exhibition on Black history, spoken word, a DJ, and a performance by King Malachi. And King Malachi joins me now. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. How you doing? Shalom, shalom. Everything okay? Excellent. We're very, very excited for this Saturday. So could we start with just introducing us to your music? What does it sound like? What I'm going to be performing for you guys would be, I'm a very versatile artist, but the side of myself that I'll be expressing this Saturday evening will be biblical hip-hop soul music. So um, I'm a Hebrew Israelite from the tribe of Judah, and I'm talking about the plight of my people who came here on the slave boats in music form, and that's what I'll be really mainly doing this Saturday. So I have songs like Jerusalem, Sick and Tired. You know, I'm just talking about the transatlantic slave trade and everything. But it's done eloquently and beautifully through great melodies, nice lyricism, and great beats. And for listeners who don't know Hebrew Israelite, what should they know mm-hmm. about this religion? Uh, Well, it's not necessarily religion. It's the people, just like how you have Chinese people, Hawaiian people, Russian people. So belief system? Or would would you consider it a belief system? Oh, interesting. So I also don't know what Hebrew Israelite is. So I guess I thought I did. (laughs) But the, the thing is, Moses is a Hebrew Israelite from the tribe of Levi. King David is a Hebrew Israelite from the tribe of Judah. Their belief system or the system that they live by is the Torah. When the Moses when Moses met the God Almighty on top of Mount Sinai and gave him the Ten Commandments, that's what we live by. So you know more about it than you really realize because pretty much most religions on earth kind of have a spiritual base that comes from our people. Large intersection, right? Yes, ma'am. Wonderful. So what has your journey been to get you to where you are right now? I've had a very vast journey. You know, I started out playing saxophone in the fifth grade. Uh, Second grade, my first um, instrument was a recordion. I sang on choirs. My first time performing in my life was seven years old in church choir. So I got a lot of grooming from church choir at first. I was a part of a singing quartet for about 10 years when I started. We started in 1990. I've been solo now on my own since 2020. So I've been solo 23 years. I've been a part of the Dungeon Family. Dungeon Family is a crew that consists of CeeLo Green from Nas Bodley, um, also, Andre 3000 and Big Boy from the um, multi-platinum group Outkast. So I come from that family. Also, I started out with Future, the hip-hop artist. That's, he's one of the biggest hip-hop artists in the world right now. So that's a lot of my background. You know, I, I was a part of um, 
I had a record deal with Steven Spielberg through DreamWorks Records. And um, that's how I moved back to Atlanta. I came to New York to get a record deal. I grew up in the South. And, um, you know, I left down South because, you know, I'm from South Carolina. I left from the South to come up North because this was where the industry was and where they had the deals and everything. And so, you know, got my deal, had almost a million dollar deal, a part of a group called Finesse. And so here I am now still doing what I'm doing. I found knowledge of self. Once I got really conscious, then I started transforming into more of my biblical hip hop soul music, which I've been doing now for about 23 years. I'm actually one of the first artists to actually pioneer this genre. Mm. You mentioned that there's a lot of history of your people in your music. This performance on Saturday is part of Black History Month. So could you talk a little bit more about how history stories are incorporated into your music? Well, like I said, you know, my, my tribe came here through the transatlantic slave trade. So a lot of my people, as when we came here and we weren't allowed to read and write and so forth, a lot of knowledge got lost. And so I'm a biblical scholar as well. And I've been studying scripture, you know, for about 25 years. So I'm a biblical master teacher, but I teach it through music. So I take the teachings and the lessons that I've acquired from, you know, the Bible, the Quran. You know, I used to study Dr. Malakazi York, Egyptology, and all of these different things. And I take and I spew it out through the music on tracks. And so it's a lot more palatable. You know, you have your teachers who are called in Hebrew mores who teach on the Sabbath day, you know, but I would call, I would like to consider myself a biblical musical more. So I'm a musical teacher of the Hebrew Israelite culture. You mentioned that it's palatable. What other benefits does teaching through the medium of music have for dispelling information because it's a lot more entertaining versus some people get bored listening to people talk and lectures etc but when you put melodies to it you have beats with it etc you know you can ride around you can play it longer you can go to sleep to it you can work out to it you know you can use it in more aspects of your life and as you're using it in these different aspects of your life, it's allowing you to absorb the information and it sticks a lot better and longer. So it's also, would you say, more accessible for different people who uh, retain information differently? What, what might work for one person doesn't work for the other. So it's reaching more people than the standard education way, would you say? Most definitely. Most definitely. So I could say... Um, I can say, I'll give you an example on a very basic level. I can say A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, O, M, O, P, right? Or I can say A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, O, M, O, P, Q, R, S. You feel what I'm saying? A little kid mm. can pick up on The mind opens up to it. Music is a very high science, and this, our spirits open up to it more. That's why we have to, that's why I'm so conscious just about the type of lyrics that I put to music because I know how powerful music is and I know how we really absorb it. You know, like we might fall asleep. Like it's like going to church. You might go to church and you might be falling asleep on the pastor, but that choir going to wake you up. 
especially if they really sang it. You feel me? Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, for young people, music is utilized as an education tool all the time. Why do we not see this as a remarkable tool for people who are older, for adults? Honestly, it is. It is for them as well. Like, I have a fan base from, like, five years old to, like, 95. So it's like, you know, I have, I mean, like, if you get online and you look at some of my performances, you'll see little, little, little children loving and loving the vibe. And I'm talking about you'll see old people, like, elderly, like, really elderly, like, 80s, 90s, singing the lyrics as well. Because it's that entertainment. We all love entertainment. Entertainment is ancient, you know, like, even though you might have something serious like a royal court, right? But you still had the court gesture. You had somebody in there playing the harp, some kind of horn, some type of instrumentation, somebody juggling something, that entertainment aspect. It's just that I took the entertainment aspect and put the intellectualism to it, and now it's powerful and it's elevated to another level because you got both aspects. It's like edutainment, so it's educational entertainment. Edutainment. Excellent. Yes. Yes. So in our last minute, this Saturday, February 25th, you'll be performing probably in the middle of the block. So the event is from four to seven. I believe you'll be performing from like five to six. So what can we expect from Saturday's performance? I know having seen your Instagram, fashion seems to be and stage presence is a big part of your performance. Can you give us like a little teaser of what we can expect? Expect an electric energy flowing through the building coming from me. Expect me to be all over the building. I'm running through the crowd. I don't just stand there and perform and sing to the mic like Luther Vandross or somebody. No, 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 no. I'm all over the place. I'm an energy buddy. I'm all, I might, I, I don't know what I might do. I might be hanging from the chandelier. Whoa, okay. <laughs> I'm just joking, but you feel me? I'm, I'm, it's very explosive. Wonderful. So we have energy. We just have yep. presence. Edutainment. So that will be this weekend on February 25th. To get a little teaser of your music, your Instagram, King Malachi one That's M-A-L-A-C-H-I-1 on Instagram. And anything you'd like to leave our listeners with before the performance on Saturday. I can't wait to see you guys, Troy. This is going to be my first time performing there ever in my life, and I can't wait to meet you all, hug you, love on you all, teach and share with you all. All praises due to the Most High. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to see you guys. Registration for that event is at Media Sanctuary. It is this Saturday the 25th from four to seven this event will also have spoken word performances amazing food and amazing community and that's our show we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the hudson mohawk magazine i'm kaylin mcpherson and i'm david moore our engineer is kaylin mcpherson we thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible headlines from mark dunley segment producers mark dunley rear barthel Tom Francis, Jerry Ford, and Cena Basila Hickey, and your co-hosts, me, David Moore, and Galen McPherson. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. 
full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening, and remember, radio isn't dying, but it is growing into the future. Until next time.